My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Amy Frickholm, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. Amy, let's start, though, with your basic religious upbringing and path. Like, give us some context for all this work. Well, I think I'm just one of those people that is tuned into religion. I can't not think about it. Everything I do ends up, I think about religion in one way or another. Yeah. And my dad's a Presbyterian minister. So I started my life as a Presbyterian. I was baptized by my dad when I was a baby. My dad was a biblical scholar, is a biblical scholar, and he kind of took this journey. And when I was growing up, we lived in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and he was a seminary professor at a North American Baptist seminary. And so when I was 12, uh, we moved over from the Presbyterian Church to the North American Baptist Seminary Church because his family was required to participate in a North American Baptist church. So mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about the Baptists. I didn't know anything about what my participation would mean, but I kind of fell in love with it. And I was just a gung-ho youth group kid. I was there for everything, Sunday night and Wednesday night. And I was the president of this and the vice president of that. And I just, I was all in, 100% all in. And then things started to kind of fall apart for me in that world in my late high school years and certainly in early college. There were so many things that I was questioning and a lot of them were around, I have to admit, around gender because I started exploring this idea, you know, that God might not be a a man and might not be Mm. a white man. In my own in my own life, I just started exploring it. I was reading things like um, there's a wonderful book by uh, Virginia Mollencott called Women, Men in the Bible. I think it was called Women, Men in the Bible. Very influential for me uh, as an evangelical. She was an evangelical. So I, you know, I felt comfortable. I didn't feel like right. I was breaking bonds. I just felt like I was learning, exploring, growing. But that didn't go over very well when I tried to bring ideas of that book into my church environment. Things went bad fast. (laughs) There's one particular incident that probably ruined the whole thing. I was teaching Sunday school to third graders and the Sunday school module was uh, names for God. And so we're going through some of the names for God. And then I said something like, did you know that in the Bible, God is sometimes imagined as a mother? And I was just repeating stuff that I knew from this book. But at that moment, actually, someone was listening in and burst into the room. And here's this little group of third graders and pointed at me and said, blasphemy. Oh, my gosh. And I was 
was 17 years old. I didn't know anything about anything. I had no authority. I was teaching with my boyfriend. His little brother was in the class. I mean, it just was, it was a horrifying moment for me. And my immediate response was shame, of course. But eventually, it was a moment of deep alienation. It began a process of alienation that where I realized that my mind and my body and my spirit weren't exactly welcome in this environment. And several other things happened over the next couple of years. So that by the time I graduated from college, I had entered college as an intervarsity Bible study leader and left college a million miles away from, from there. And at that point, I ended up as a Quaker, an Episcopalian, a Catholic. I don't know. I tried all kinds of different things. I never joined. I was not a joiner. Right. I was kind of done joining. I didn't sign any paperwork. I was just kind of done with the whole idea. I was just deeply alienated. But like I said, I can't stop thinking about religion. So I was at the religion department in at Duke because I just thought I have to pursue this fascination. But the religion department at Duke for me was at the end of the day too theological. I wasn't really interested in the ideas that were being played around with there. And I ended up in the literature program, which is a cultural studies program. And this is important to the context of rapture culture because my my advisor in that program, and this is a PhD program, I should say, she was reading romance novels and trying to understand why women read romance novels. And so she was writing these kind of proto-feminist takes on romance novels, doing mm. ethnographic work with readers. And I just thought that was fascinating. And so even though I was in this kind of, I wouldn't call it all out Marxist state, I was in a quasi Marxist state at the time, I started wondering about religious reading. And this goes back to something from my upbringing, which was that when I was in high school, we were reading Frank Peretti novels. And I don't know if you know anything about Frank Peretti, but he was a kind of pre-Left Behind sort of thing. Before the Left Behind novels, he wrote these popular takes on spiritual warfare. Right. Yep. And pe people were just reading those things with hunger and fascination, and they were influencing our daily lives. So people were talking suddenly about spiritual warfare and demons in the room. And did you feel that presence? And it was all coming directly out of Frank Peretti. And I knew that because I was reading it along with everybody else. So I carried that fascination into graduate school and I started to wonder about religious reading and especially religious fictional reading and, and its influence on religious identity and religious life and all of those things. And at that very moment, the Left Behind novels were just beginning to come out. And so I thought, okay, well, I've got my Frank Peretti moment. I can use these novels to examine this question of belief and fiction that fascinates me. And I can use yeah. some of the techniques that my advisor has. I had no idea that these things were going to be as popular as they were. So you start, you decided to, to start analyzing them and, and working with them before they exploded. Yes, it was early on. And I thought it was, I thought I was looking at a subculture. I thought I was looking wow. at, you know, a little subculture in American, you know, a Frank Peretti kind of thing. You know, there'd be a few people I could talk to about it. I just had no idea. I didn't know about the Walmart moment that was ahead of us. And so when it happened, I was just kind of, a, I just kind of had to laugh because I, I really didn't. And I, one of the things I struggled with so much when I was doing this study was, is evangelicalism a subculture 
in American society as it so much presents itself, of course, and as it's so much, as we can so easily imagine, it's always against the culture, right? So it can't be, it can't be a dominant culture, but as it spread like wildfire through dominant culture uh, institutions, I just, I started to wonder, maybe I shouldn't be interpreting this as a subculture. Maybe I should be understanding this as a, as a dominant culture in American society. And I, and now it's, you know, 20 years later, I don't really know how to interpret that. I don't have new data or new understanding, but it has remained a question for me as we've kind of watched the rise and fall in some ways of, of this culture. So you have two books that are kind of about this phenomenon. The first one is called Christian Understandings of the Future. And then the second one is is the uh, the rapture one that you mentioned. But I think there's something interesting before we talk specifically about premillennial dispensationalism, the particular rapture-led kind of view of, of end times, popular in evangelicalism. I imagine you uncovered like some alternate understandings of the future in working on that book. And I'm I'm curious a little bit about like, give us a thumbnail sketch of what some of those different understandings are that we could put this one in context. Yeah, that's a great question. I never did find one that was like, oh, there's the one. Now yeah. I understand how Christians should understand the future. Sure. But one of the things that struck me was for a thousand years at least, Christians were so absorbed in bodily resurrection. And really so much of Christian energy went into how are these bodies, physical bodies, going to be resurrected? And that was the obsessive question. They would look at things like, what happens if a body is dismembered? What right. happens if a body is burnt? What happens? And, and they were really just trying to, to think about this and imagine a physical resurrection. But it was a very important point for Christians for about a thousand years. And they never really thought about you know, the kinds of things that we talk about today about the end of the world and all of that, because they were looking for a, a new Jerusalem. They assumed that God would renew the world in some sort of way. And it was this world that would be renewed. And so they were looking for how could we understand bodies? How do we understand, you know, the number of people who will be present in the new Jerusalem and, and that sort of thing. So they didn't have some of the scientific questions that we had, but they did have questions about bodily integrity and that sort of thing. You know, then you enter a period where Christians are obsessed with the question of the afterlife and they begin to try to order the afterlife. They try to understand the levels of heaven and the levels of purgatory. And, you know, this is kind of the Dante moment where Dante takes this popular belief and these popular questions, the whole, you know, the emergence of the idea of purgatory and how that might work in order to purge sin. So the huge question for those Christians was, if I'm sinful and I'm going to be sinful until I die, how can I be saved? Yeah. The whole structure became like monks confessing five or six times a day just to try to keep their souls in decent condition for the afterlife. Should they have a stroke, you know, or whatever. Oh, yeah. Like, just in case. That one's interesting because... That actually, we're starting to find some alignment with some of the work that I've done. So I did a 20 interview series before I started my doctoral program. It was kind of dissertation light. And I interviewed people about end times and various mental health symptoms and whatnot. And one of the stories was from Jim Stump, who's now the president, I think, of BioLogos. He's a philosopher. But when he was like in college... He had been raised with a particular theological understanding 
that was very much in that vein. It was very like, it was about sort of the purity of your soul and you can't enter God's presence if there's any imperfections. And so he would actually worry about, he would have, you know, significant anxiety about getting in a car accident, swearing as the car swerves and then dying and going to hell because he swore mid crash. Like, now, I was not raised with that mercifully, but like, I, I think there's like some psychological connection between what the monks are doing and what Jim was taught that I, I would say is kind of, to the extent it's possible to do it, separate from the underlying theology. There's maybe like a certain kind of psychology that's drawn toward that. And I don't think Jim was drawn toward it. I think Jim was ultimately repelled by it, but the people who taught him were drawn toward it. And so we could ask interesting questions. Why were they drawn to that? What did they find so compelling about this, like, really ramped up purity, you know, or whatever? Right. And we do see that in end times thinking, I think, quite quite a bit. You know, I mean, there's jokes about it. For example, what if I'm having sex with my girlfriend in the back of the car when the rapture happens? You know, what will I I used to worry about that? I used to worry about (laughs) masturbating. Like at 14, if I'm masturbating when Jesus returns, man, I'm in a pickle. Uh, I'm in a pickle. I I was really worried about that. This takes us to rapture culture because one of the things that I observed in my interview. So when I went into these interviews, the only condition for the interview was, have you read left behind? Have you not read left behind? That was it. If you've read left behind, then I interviewed you. And it was that simple. But one of the things that I was afraid of as an outsider, as I saw myself coming back and interviewing people who had this worldview was that they were going to spend our interviews witnessing to me. And I was, <laughs> I was afraid of that fear. dynamic. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. I, I was really afraid of that dynamic. And I thought, man, I don't know if I can endure this. I just don't know if I want to put myself in this situation over and over again, but I still thought the idea for the project was great and I wanted to go ahead. So what I discovered, however, really only one person out of all my interviewees took the opportunity to witness to me and pray for me and everyone else. The minute that I started to myself express some vulnerability, you know, I would say something like, I'm a seeker. I don't really know the answers to a lot of questions. And I, you know, in some ways, this project allows me to explore questions that I, that I have. And, you know, so I would, I would express some doubt or some uncertainty or put myself in a position of unknowing and partly so that people would talk to me. And I was hopeful that that would actually lead because I guess what happened was early on, one of my early interviews, I was asking questions about left behind and the person's perception or whatever. And then at one point she said, when you and I go in the rapture, and I suddenly realized that she didn't understand where I was coming from. Wow. Like you wouldn't want to talk to me about this unless you were also a believer, basically. That's what I took from yeah. her point. And I and that frightened me from an interview's an interviewer point of view, right? Oh my gosh, what would my advisor say if she knew that I was I was in this position where this person didn't know my worldview and and didn't know my background and I, you know, was pretending to be a believer. But you weren't pretending to be a believer. She she just assumed it. She right? just assumed it. I wasn't pretending. I didn't yeah. say anything. 
So yeah. at that point, I sort of learned that silence was not my friend. And mm. so then I was like, well, what do I say? I can't say, I think you guys are a bunch of morons. I can't say, I just from a scientific perspective, am in examining specimens of odd human behavior. Like I couldn't <laughs> right, say right. that. Yeah, because that's so then looking down on them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't want to be condescending and I didn't want to be alienating. So finally, I just said my point about doubt and so on. And, you know, just being a questioner by nature and that sort of thing. What shocked me was how my vulnerability opened up the uncertainty and the doubt in the other person. So Whoa. that almost all the time, my interviews opened a door on doubt and the deep anxiety that is a part of rapture culture, that's a part of this culture, became very vivid to me. And I was actually surprised by it. I was startled. But what I realized is that the question of being left behind is a personal question. And almost nobody thought they were for sure going in the rapture. Hmm. And the only time they would they would think that is when they were with other people who were reassuring them that they were right. one of those people who would go in the rapture. Oh, gosh. Wow. That sentence right there, Amy, is doing that's a <laughs> that's a big phenomenon you just gestured right at there. with that one. Yeah. So I have a couple thoughts about this. First of all, have you talked with or read Daniel Silliman's book about reading Christian fiction? No. He he's at Christianity Today. I interviewed him earlier this year, I think, or maybe very late last year. Really cool stuff. He he talked about Left Behind. He also read some of these Christian romance novels. And we talked about that. Anyway. Uh, Did he uh, read Frank Peretti? Yep. I keep waiting for someone to write about Frank Peretti. Yeah. Frank Peretti, too, I think awesome. was on there. So he did like six bestsellers or something like that. Josh will put a link in the show notes to that episode if people want to go back and listen to it. I think you'd like it, too, Amy, or you you'd, you should check out his work. Yeah, it sounds great. I want to talk about the doubt and that deep anxiety that's part of the culture. Let me just be like an annoy, do a little annoying social science thing first, though, which is to say that you thought Left Behind would be a smaller thing, more like, you know, the devout would read it and would consume this kind of niche content. But then it blows up. It goes into Walmarts and Barnes and Nobles everywhere and sells, I don't know, something like 80 million copies or something between the books, just a gargantuan number for books. I mean, a, a hit book is like 50,000 books. These are not three times a week churchgoers, right? The average Left Behind reader is like, Someone who watches Oprah or whatever, you know, they're not on average the person, you know, in your local community or at your church who's like super devout, definitely knows they're going, you know, that kind of a thing. Like, do you think that that's playing a part of it and that you ended up getting like a broader swath of America because of the popularity of the books? So here's one layer of that that I can unfold for you, Yeah, which is. I could not for the life of me figure out with these sales numbers how they tracked to actual readers. So one thing I know for sure is that Tyndale House and Left the Left Behind series was incredibly successful at convincing churches to buy enormous right. numbers of books that they would then hand out. So I couldn't, I was never successful at tracking those sales numbers to actual readers. Yeah. And if you look at the sales of books, you start with enormous number of sales and then you just, you, and then it gradually goes down as the say, as the series 
progresses. Right. And so the first the book final is book, the biggest one. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And then they add in comic books and then they add in, you know, uh, children's series. And if you had only interviewed people who read like, what is it? The uh, what's the final book called? The the appearing or remember. something. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever that one is like. If you'd only read those people, I would guess 98 percent would go, oh, for sure. I'm going in the rapture. Like you get. It, yeah, that's a good the, question. But the first book is more like, you know, that's the big yeah. radio hit for a band, you know, or something like that. Yeah, something like that. But most of the people that I interviewed, you know, were did consider themselves pretty devout. Oh, interesting. Um, or they were people who'd been given the book by somebody who was pretty devout mm-hmm. and, you know, wanted to talk about that dynamic in that relationship. This is where I got so baffled. You know, people just picking it up off the rack at Walmart and reading it and then being, I think they just would have been puzzled. I mean, I did talk to some people who were like, yeah, I just read everything. I just read everything. If it's popular, I read it. I just pick up everything and I read it. And I didn't think these books were very good. So what I kind of discovered is that you have almost to, to get an investment in that worldview you have to have an investment in that worldview. So in order Mm. to enjoy Left Behind and imbue it with your own imagination and make that thing come alive, because it's a pretty dead object. Like anybody, and the other thing I discovered is that anybody who read- It's so poorly written, it's unbelievable. Exactly. (laughs) And anybody who read anything else, anything else could compare and could compare it to something else was like, boy, that, well, I wouldn't say this is very good, but I really love, and then they would change the conversation to something else that they loved. So they had read it, but they weren't as particularly interested in it. The interest came from when you were a part of the worldview and you had this doubt and insecurity that was a part of the worldview. And then you read this book and it allowed you to feel some, people described feeling some comfort For Mm -hmm. example, you know, all the books kind of walk people through the uh, process of becoming a Christian. Yeah, the sinner's prayer, the kind of basics, yeah. And so the readers would describe to me, these are people who'd walk through that prayer a hundred thousand times, right? This is part of their daily life. But they would, would talk about how they would walk through that prayer as they were reading the book. And they would feel some comfort or some relief. Okay, check mark. I've done that. I've done this. I've done that. So if you had that kind of imaginative investment in the idea of the rapture, you believed it was happening, then you could take this poorly written book, imbue it with your own imaginative life. And then they would tell me, oh, I just loved these characters. I just fell in love with them. And, you huh. know, I'm I'm really like so-and-so because I'm a survivor and so-and-so is a survivor. You know, and I would be looking at these cookie, these cutouts, like paper dolls. And I'd be like, yeah. what? How, how did you get that from that? But it was this act of readerly imagination. They would mm. also talk about being so absorbed in the plot and the characters that when they would turn on the television the next day, it would be like they'd expect to see the Antichrist. So it had this powerful wow. imaginative pull that wasn't on the page, if you will. <laughs> like yeah. I couldn't find it in the text, but it was in the interaction between reader and text that imagination would just fuel uh, passion. And then they would be tempted to give the book away, especially to their mothers. To make sure that they made it. Their mothers they were died. saved. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There was terrible anxiety about the faith of mothers and how the mothers of many of the readers, an unusual and unexpected number, the question that their mothers might not be saved and might need the Left Behind series. That really shocked me that there was this fear about 
reader's mothers. Tell me if you think this model makes sense. Here's a little ad hoc model of what's going on. Okay, you need to have enough investment in the worldview, this basic good versus evil, fairly soon Jesus will return. That seems plausible to me. And there will be a line in the sand. Okay, I have enough investment of that to read the book. Then when I read the book, the book will inject steroids into the part of me that believes in that worldview, right? Because it will just sort of like poke at me in every sensitive spot. And it's the only thing the book is really doing because it's not doing anything else. It's not like well-written. It's not like the the plot doesn't always make sense. Right. No. Uh, there's not really interesting characters. It's all very, like you said, paper cut out. But what it is doing is it's like it's saving all of its arrows for those little spots that sort of increase my engagement with this worldview. I remind myself as I read, oh, I have done these things. I am good. So it gives me both disease and cure. But in doing so, a very simple logical next step is, well, what about the people I love? So it's sort of increasing my awareness of who's going to be on what side of that line in the sand that isn't me. I'm good. I'm reading this and reminding myself that I'm good. But, oh, shit. And then that might itself be the single greatest driver of book sales because a person or a pastor or whatever goes, we got to make sure everyone else gets on this train with us. Yeah? I think that's brilliant. And I think you should write that down. and. Like, and, but I would also add <laughs> another, <laughs> Thank you. I another, yeah. oh, wait, I wrote that down. Oh, wait, I think I wrote, I think maybe I wrote that it's down. It's probably in the book, um, you know. I think yeah. it might be. No, but I, what I wanted to say is I think there's another layer and I, that it, and it comes at that moment of I'm good. Yeah. So one of the things that the books do and, and something that happens repeatedly, but is especially important in the first book is that you introduce this character who does all the right things, says all the right things. He's the pastor, Pastor Barnes, I think is his name. He He's, you know, an icon of virtue in the community. He is the guy you look to that, yeah, he, he has it all. He gets left behind. And nobody can point to any reason, including himself, why he was left behind. And the only thing that he can say is, down deep, way down deep, I knew better. And I think that's fascinating. Where's this down deep where you know better? Because you said something really interesting in your summary. You said that that part of me that believes this. So there's always another part of you that maybe doesn't believe this. Yeah. And those parts are often talking to each other. Yeah. And so what the Less Left Behind series does is exploit that moment, that other part that doesn't believe this and points to a Pastor Barnes because there's no down deep, way down deep where you know better. And I think we all know that from our own experience. We all know that this idea of trying to find like the essential self who knows or doesn't know or believes or doesn't believe is a project that just can't be managed. And that's why, you know, the monks did this confession thing because Hmm. it was this tangible, I mean, and of course Catholics do it today, but it's this tangible moment where you can be absolved. Evangelicals don't get that. They don't get anything like it. You can say the prayer over and over and over again, and there's always going to be that little voice that's like, "Really, not you? You're no good. You're not gonna, you're not gonna be saved. You're not gonna be raptured." So there's both um, 
moment of comfort and relief. Like, okay, check. I did that. I've done all the things. And then there's the moment of doubt. Maybe I haven't, maybe it's not me. I'll be the one left behind. And so many people confess that to me. I just wonder what if I'm left behind? And then just exactly like you said, then there's also the question of everybody else that they love. So I think this is the festering wound. And it's, as you said, the Left Behind series presents both the disease and the cure, but the cure doesn't work. It sends you back to the disease. Right. And then you got to buy the next book. (laughs) You got to buy the next book and the next book. Ostensibly, you want to follow the plot like your your, uh, Tom Clancy novels or whatever, but the deeper pull is, oh, there, there's more? Like, maybe I should make sure I'm good again, right? Yes. In my experience in evangelicalism, I often went back to the altar for another go. You know, let's try this again. Maybe this time it'll take. And I, I think that that is written into the existential crisis of an end times anxiety. I have friends who were terrified of not being saved, right? I never had that. I For whatever reason... Maybe it had to do with like my secure attachment to my parents and just feeling very secure and loved in the years where I thought there was heaven and hell and I was going to go to one or the other. I never thought I was going to hell. What I was afraid of was actually missing out on life here. That was Mm -hmm. what caused me anxiety. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure what all the reasons for that are. And I don't know if those can be known. But we can sort of look at it. Then we can kind of create like a spectral map or something where you can kind of see where people doubt doubt themselves, doubt others. Uh, and, mm. and the Left Behind series was great at creating doubt across a spectrum. Is it me? Am I the one? I talked to a lot of people like that. But then it could also be, is, is my mother the one? Is she the one who's going to be left behind? Because I, I can't imagine a world, you know, where my mother is left behind. Or, you know, there were just all these kinds of moments where people would express this sort of, there, there was this phenomenon, and I'd love to look at it more psychologically as opposed to kind of anthropologically, which is how I looked at it. But this moment where people would describe like, oh, I came home from church, from a church meeting, and the garage door was open and the, the kids' bicycles were in the garage. Oh, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And they're like, and all of a sudden I thought the rapture had happened and they left me, you know, and yeah. this would be like the most devout, most church going person on the planet who suddenly experiences this moment of like they took the kids in, you know, they took my husband, but they left me behind. Yeah, there's something there. I never really thought I would be left behind. And yet I had, I don't know, 20 of those experiences before age 20 or so. And I, and I still sometimes it is still my first thought, like it's baked into me. If, yes, I get if you. I, if why, where's everybody? Like the first thought right. is rapture and I don't believe it anymore. Um, I don't, <laughs> yeah. and I it used to scare me. It doesn't scare me anymore, but it's like, will that, that will probably never go away. Right. 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 It's in your, it's baked somehow into your neuro neurological, you know, uh, perception of the world. And you're not alone. Like a lot of people have that. And most oh, yeah. people laugh, even yeah. the ones who believe it and are still invested in the rapture worldview. Yep. They'll still laugh when they tell you about that experience. And part of it's nervous laughter, but part of it's just, I mean, this is hilarious kind of laughter. So I don't know what to make of that either. One way that I think about this is like in a, in a congregation, you might have let's just call it two kinds of people, but it's much more shaded than that. But like people who were more like me, who know that they're in and people who were more like you, who are anxious about whether or not they're in. 
And when the pastor goes through the altar call, or at least like it's always framed as for people here in the room that don't know the Lord yet. So when the pastor does that thing, right? It works for both of those kinds of people, but for slightly different reasons. So for the, for the person who's more like you were, it calms their anxiety that they're in. Cause they just like reading the book, they go, Oh yeah, I've done that. I checked those boxes. I'm good. For the person who's more like I was, who isn't worried necessarily about being in or not, it reminds me that I'm in the tribe and that I have done the thing that is the most important signifier for our group. But I would also, if I'm in that place, I would say for the whole world, this is the number one most important thing any person can do while they're alive. And each week that this thing goes out to the friend I didn't invite, <laughs> right? Most of the time, uh, <laughs> like I'm reminded of that. And then, then that gives me a, a psychological benefit. What it really raises for me is a question about what belief is. Hmm. what it is and and when you t- when you have a religion that puts so much emphasis on this very unstable entity this thing that we're calling belief and it just puts all the rocks in that pile it creates some instability because you have this kind of i don't think belief at the end of the day can hold up to the kind of consistency and intensity that's being asked of it. I don't think the self can hold up to that. And I don't think belief, and belief as this very fluid and strange phenomenon that can appear in one moment as indelible and in another moment sort of disappear. It, It just, it doesn't create a super strong foundation for a theological life. Wow. I agree. I'm drawn to thinking about my friend, Heather Griffin, And she talks about sincerity culture in white evangelicalism. And so I think for her, this is one of the things that comes in and buttresses belief. So it's not just that you believe it, but it's that you believe it really hard. You believe it really sincerely. And that modifier is supposed to kind of, I don't know, give you that badge, right? Give you that sort of thing. And then there are a bunch of consequences in, in her mind, which and I think she's right, that then flow from that kind of sincerity culture, which is basically anti-intellectual and and in some cases anti-discipleship and anti-moral formation. Uh, and so you get all these problems. But in that sort of moment that we're talking about, that moment of needing to soothe one's anxiety, that sincerity culture, that sort of like, well, all there is is these 20 to 40 Bible facts arranged correctly. And if you believe them and you really believe them, if you're sincere about it, then you're good. That kind of a thing. That makes me think about the psycho, uh, the psychoanalyst uh, Lacan and his idea of what he calls the lupitia. It's this like X factor that's out there in any kind of uh, experience that we have that maybe we haven't actually had the experience. So he said, why would people need to have sex more than one time? Only because uh, there's the lipiti ah, the other thing that might be out there that they haven't experienced, something like that. I don't know. That isn't mm. quite right. I need to go back and review my Lacan. But it makes me think about that. Like, I really sincerely believe this in this moment. And sincerity, my expression of sincerity is crucial to this culture and to my worldview. And should I ever experience that X factor, that lupiti ah, that thing that's out there, then 
it just can rattle ever so slightly. But then I just double down on sincerity. I mean, this is all again, probably too simplistic, but we might think that there are two things going on that are actually kind of in competition with each other in a person's mind. One is recapturing a feeling of, of gloriousness, which is kind of what that's gesturing at. Like maybe your conversion experience or a time where you felt the spirit so strongly and you do want more of those. And, and maybe, maybe like hard drugs, you can never quite get that same high again, or maybe you get a different kind of experience. At the same time, we have a real need, a psychological need as humans for sameness, for security, for predictability. Like if I don't know every morning that my house is going to still be standing and the mortgage is still going to be in my name and no one's going to evict all my stuff onto the lawn, like I need that. Because if I don't have that, then I can't do any of the other stuff I was going to do today. I have to worry about that. And if I'm worrying all the time as to whether or not I'm in the right religious community or I'm good with God or whatever, then like that's going to be a really unstable life. And those of us who have gone through periods, many listeners are in these, this period right now, where you really are unsure of like where you stand or what you think about ultimate things like that aspect, you, you can end up you know, questing for something great and you can end up with something better. But in the meanwhile, it can suck and it can be, take so much energy and time and anxiety and even depression. And so I wonder if those are kind of both going on at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, this sounds cynical the way I say it, but think how effective an end times worldview is in that situation to stave off the moment of uncertainty or the moment of doubt, because you really don't want to enter there for an extended period of time if you really believe that the world is going to end at any moment. And if you've been convinced that that Jesus can come at any time, it's a really effective method for for stalling that moment of self-questioning or culture questioning or whatever. So it's an interesting way that Christianity in some ways developed to police the boundaries and keep people within the worldview, especially as we entered a, you know, a period where different worldviews were more available and abundant and you could explore different worldviews. And people didn't have that option really, you know, in a, in the 14th century in, in England, it wasn't like, gee, I wonder what it's like to be a Muslim, or I wonder what it's like not to be a believer. Those, those options were pretty few and far between. And today, and as Christianity entered this kind of modern period with much more pluralism and much more diversity of views and understandings and a scientific worldview that was also competing with the Christian worldview and so on, I think end times belief emerged as a way to police the boundaries of the tribe, as you were describing. Well, so we're going to take a break, but let me just sort of tease what what I want to start with when we get back. You have spent a lot of time in these mainline Protestant circles. I identify myself theologically as basically a liberal mainline Protestant in the kind of Schleiermacher Tillich mold, more or less. That church world avoids the pitfall of playing on people's anxieties. And it also avoids the pitfall of denying the actual variety of the world, the fundamental fact of pluralism in both our own culture and of course, global cultures. And yet it doesn't do as well. (laughs) It's not as effective in a lot of ways at keeping people engaged. Children don't stick around as much if their parents raise them in that environment. Most of those denominations are literally dying. Some of them would be dead if not for massive 
uh, grant funding from dead billionaires, essentially, who were Episcopals or what have you. Uh, or for the Episcopals, they have all that real estate uh, in Manhattan as well. So I want to talk about that because I, the listeners of my show who go to church, most of them go to mainline Protestant churches. My wife and I are currently shopping for mainline Protestant church to go to. Like, it's not, I'm in, but it's like, that's really interesting. There's a lot of tension there. So that's what we're going to talk about when we come back. If you'd like more, you have permission. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan That link is in the show notes. Patrons get at least two additional episodes per month exclusive to them, as well as access to the patron only Facebook group, which is an awesome little online community for talking through all the crap that we are thinking as our faiths and our lives change. Um, it's a great, great community. So again, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, five bucks a month, uh, support something that you care about and join the community. Back to the episode. Okay, Amy. So when I talk about mainline Protestantism, by the way, let me just be clear. I'm talking about Episcopals, like some Presbyterians, PCUSA, United Methodist Church, uh, ELCA, the Lutheran Church that's affirming. United Church of Christ, these these kinds of denominations that are theologically more progressive, they tend to be fully affirming of LGBTQ people, they tend to uh, have female pastors, you know, all that kind of thing, and they tend to reject things like biblical inerrancy. And I guess I want to first ask you if you think my characterization is accurate, that these are church environments that do a better job of not playing on people's sort of base anxiety and they do a better job of acknowledging the brute fact of pluralism within the world. I mean, are, do we agree on that? I should say just as a qualifier that I have spent a lot of time talking to mainline Protestants and I've spent a lot of time talking about evangelicals and I have not spent a lot of time talking about mainline Protestants, if that makes sense. So I don't have sure. as many ways of talking about mainline Protestantism as I do about evangelicalism, uh, because I've spent all this time understanding mainline Protestants as kind of my audience and not right. so much as uh, my my study subject. So I didn't finish my own story about my background and my history. I stopped with my work on rapture culture. And what happened after actually happened during the research of rapture culture was that the farther I got away from religious environments, and you, you really couldn't get much farther away from religious environments than the Duke University literature program, where even just using, people use the word theological as an insult, is a way of <laughs> insulting other people. Yeah. So um, it, you really couldn't go much farther away. And the, the farther I went, the more I craved church environments, the more I craved religious experience, the more I needed to put myself in places that were very surprising and uh, unexpected to me. And so the real result of my research in the Left Behind series was to lead me actually back into 
uh, religious environments. It was the last thing I was expecting, mm. but I was really undergoing quite a transformation in my own life uh, as I was finishing this research and writing about it. The, probably the single biggest factor, well, there were two really important factors. One was um, a mystical experience that I had with Julian of Norwich, who I wrote a book about at, um, right. a little later on. And the, the second thing was the encounter with a place called St. George Episcopal Church in Leadville, Colorado, which is the small town that I moved to after finishing my dissertation or in the midst of it. And this was a church that is in a town of probably 4,000 up in the mountains in Colorado. So a tiny town, a tiny church, and it had a food program which actually the people who run it and myself included would really object to the words food program, but it's the best way I know how to describe it. We feed people. We feed people constantly. We feed, we do four meals a week and three food pantries a week. And it's just all about food. And I am obsessed with places that serve free food. I'm absolutely obsessed with them. And so I found my way to St. George Episcopal Church by serving at the community meal. And I have never left. And that was, you know, 22 years ago. And eventually, it took a very long time, but eventually I became an actual Episcopalian. You as joined. in, I joined. It, it was embarrassing. The Really, the reason that I joined was finally because I felt that it was quite embarrassing for my sweet, dear, beloved priest that someone was serving as president of the bishop's committee without having actually become an Episcopalian. So I felt that that was embarrassing and I thought I should do the paperwork. So that was really how I became an Episcopalian. Apologies to all Episcopalians out there who I'm sure have much better, deeper, and more robust reasons for becoming one. But mine was, you know, lack of a better option, live in a small town and want to feed people. It's beautiful. I'm almost positive that my journey will end as some sort of mainline Protestant Christian. That is probably where I'm headed. The The brute facts on the ground, though, are that that's not what's tending to happen. So the evangelical church is hemorrhaging young people. Most of those people still identify as being spiritual, and very few of them are ending up in mainline denominations what do you think is going on there? Like, give me your kind of cliff notes. Well, I think that mainline Protestantism was a phenomenon of the mid 20th century. And all our ideas about it, whether it's dying or growing or this or that, are products of the mid 20th century. Interesting. And they're not products of Christianity per se. They're not products of, you know, this tradition that we are immersing and embedding ourselves in and wondering about. Uh, right. That tradition, I think, is, is, is broader. It's more alive. They're also a product of racism. When we say mainline Protestantism, the word we're kind of leaving out is white, mainline mm. Protestantism. And so a lot of times I wonder when we talk about the you know, we talk about mainline Protestantism, quote unquote, dying. I just wonder, are we talking about white churches dying? And if so, yeah. should we be sorry? <laughs> you know, should should this be yeah. a cause for for sadness? I don't I don't know. I don't know. Where I am located, I see small groups of very committed, very passionate people connecting around things that mean a great deal to them, rooted in an ancient tradition. And if that's 
no longer going to be called a church or if people are going to spend all their time and energy trying to get more people to jump on board and be a part of that thing because being a part of the thing checks boxes that denominations need and so on. Like, I don't think that's worth a lot of our time and energy. Hmm. I think that what's valuable is for churches, however big, however small, however, wherever they are located, to look around and figure out what the people around them are struggling with, suffering from, in need of, in care, uh, you know, where the care is needed and use whatever resources we have to do that work. And and then I don't think it'll matter if we're alive or dead, if the church lives or dies. It to me it feels like Christianity was always or at its best I see it as a reform movement <laughs> and was never particularly good as an institution ever, mm. right? But at its most extreme in the sense of not being a part of the culture, but having something to say to the culture. I think that's that's where Christian gift might be in the world is as a almost as a as a reform movement and not so much as an institution. I'm largely with you. One of the areas where I wonder is with raising children. Mm. So like I want my son who's two and a half to have at least like a legitimate shot at the kind of Christian faith that works for me. That's not a lot to ask. I don't think like he he's going to make his own choice, but like, I'd like him to have, you know, you know, the, a chance to give it the college try. Right. And what I had, what you and I both had when we were growing up was a robust youth group infrastructure. Were there problems with that nationally? Oh boy, there were problems. However, I had a great experience in youth group. I am still friends with a lot of those people 25 years later. And at that age, that was a that was a almost an ideal way for me to be engaging in my faith. And will that exist? You know, like will will my mm-hmm. son have access to that? Um, and when he's younger, like he is now, I would like a Sunday school experience for him. And the and the churches that tend to have the infrastructure for that are churches whose teachings I don't want him hearing. Uh, and right. that's a that's yeah. a real problem. And if I'm just talking about adults, people 30 and up, and I'm just like, well, you know what? Go to church or don't. Find a spiritual community. Find your practices. If this whole thing dies, so be it. But when I'm thinking about eight-year-olds, I don't think of it that way because mm-hmm. formation for children is just much more complex and they're, the stakes are higher and all this kind of thing. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I don't feel especially reassuring being able to offer any reassurance. Although, again, I would point out that Sunday school and youth group are products of the 20th century. And there were Christians before Sunday school and youth group, and there will be Christians after Sunday school and youth group. So I would, yeah. I would be curious about how to pass on a tradition in, the, in an environment like the one we're in. I think that's a really legitimate question. How, how do we pass this tradition on? And I agree with you that mainline Protestants have not been particularly successful in, in passing this on. And there, you know, there are certain reasons for that culturally, this, you know, a deep investment in individualism and this idea that a child has to make a choice and so on. And I, and I'm not against that. I mean, I, I just, so I'm just 20 years down the road from you, you know, my son is 20 is 20. Mm. And I had many of the same thoughts about how, 
am I going to raise him without that infrastructure? And and what will, you know, what will help? And my son is is a well-raised person and he's out there in the world doing amazing things. And he is a deep thinker and he is curious human being. Hmm. And he is he a Christian? I don't know how he would answer that. I don't yeah. think he would say, yes, I'm a Christian. But he would also say, if I said, where's your home church? He would say, oh, St. George Episcopal Church in Leadville, Colorado. Right. And if he was asked to characterize that church, he would say, oh, my gosh, they feed people and they, you know, tell these beautiful stories that I grew up listening to. Yeah. So whether he'll he'll decide eventually on a label for that or whether he himself will seek out a spiritual community, he's very influenced, obviously, by his upbringing and what we did have and that I think was valuable was godly play, which I don't know if you've heard of, but it's I have like heard a, of godly play. Yeah. It's a really fun way to give children the background and the deep feeling for the Christian tradition that I think was particularly powerful for him and, and cool. for the other kids that were around. And there weren't very many, you know, there weren't very many kids around. It was, it was a small number and there wasn't Sunday school. You know, every once in a while, somebody would go and hang out with him. You know, that was kind of Sunday school or whatever. But he grew up with the stories. He grew up with the mission. He grew up hanging out at the tables of the community meal. With He's not scared of people. You know, he's not scared of their stories. So those were some of the values that were really important to me, that he could he could engage the questions. Can he engage the questions? And yeah. I think the tradition is living enough in me and in his grandparents and in some of the people around him that he keeps returning to it as a as a set as a viable prospect for his own questioning and his own you know for his own future i don't know where that'll take him yeah but he's only 20 i mean he's so only yeah, 20. Like, yeah like he's gonna experience so much and he like just like you were talking about how you you went and studied these evangelicals reading left behind and it brought you back to an Episcopal church <laughs> like i mean we just have all kinds of experiences exactly. and it's very difficult it's impossible to predict the effects they will have on us. One way in to maybe weave in some of your later work here, you have written a lot about sexuality and embodiment, right? And and within evangelicalism, there is a very hard line often drawn between like emotion and reason, body and soul, this functional dualism, almost a functional Gnosticism going on in that community. One thing though that you know, Pentecostal churches do, and a lot of, you know, Bible churches and non-denominational churches do, is they actually engage their bodies a lot more sometimes than these sort of upper-class white mainline Protestant churches do. And in, 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 so in one sense, they are explicitly not embodied, and they're kind of anti-embodiment. And then in another sense, they're doing a better job of being embodied than we are. Uh, do you see that tension? I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, that's a tricky one. I don't I don't know. I mean, obviously all religion is embodied, right? Cuz we're all right. like we show up with our bodies and we do stuff with our bodies. So all religion is in some sense embodied. And what did draw me to the Episcopal Church in the end, you know, was strong 
practices, embodied practices, like, for example, communion, maybe even not just for example, maybe one and only, maybe the only example I have is communion. Although certainly my Episcopal church is pretty experimental around, you know, like various forms of embodied theology. We were big into rocks. You know, we, we do a lot of stuff with rocks and I'm sorry, um, with rocks. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like um, we would make wilderness gardens, you know, during Lent out okay. of rocks and we would, we would write things on rocks and we would, you know, remind ourselves of various things. Recently, recently the, the rock phase is sort of ending for us. And um, some of the people are like, could we take some of these rocks outside now? <laughs> do we have to keep them in the church? <laughs> and there was that sort just of a reminds about me, that. my mother-in-law led a group of people who painted rocks for my son for his, um, ended up happening late because of COVID, but his basically baby shower. And those are spread throughout our garden and they have like yes. trucks painted on them because he was into trucks and some of them have Bible verses and, you know, evangelical community. Most of those Bible verses are like really sweet things you would want to say to a child. And like he likes to sometimes carry them. Like, can I take this one with me for this car ride? And the connection with the garden where my wife also really likes to spend time and he likes to join her that's just i that is actually a cool yeah. embody it's an example of an that's embodied that's a great that is a great practice. example that is a yeah. great example and we yeah so we did a lot of things around with that sort of thing you know and i should say that i was not in a pentecostal environment so i really but i remember being really moved while i was doing the left behind research when i was in a church so often what i would do is i'd interview someone and then i'd also go if they would allow me to go to their bible study i'd go to bible study if they'd allow me to go to their yeah. home i'd go to their home if they'd allow me to go to their church or i would just find out where their church was and i would just go yeah and i remember being in a non-denominational borderline pentecostal very diverse church that was one of the readers of the left behind series it was their church and people you know started dancing when there was a particular piece of music playing or something and i started crying. You know, I, again, for me, an embodied religion is really in my, in my body and, and um, not having a connection to that made me feel very lonely. I do know that I, do, I have not spent a lot of time in the kind of traditional liberal Protestant church in the suburbs. I really haven't spent a lot of time and I can't speak to that, but I do know that I recently participated in a conference at the University of Chicago Divinity School where I was kind of amazed by what they were doing in terms of creative worship and creative thinking about embodiment and in their mm. spaces, how that was going to work. And I, I was kind of amazed by it. And I think that at St. George Episcopal Church, one of one of the things we often we have been very much involved in is foot washing, which is not everybody's favorite embodiment practice. Sounds super evangelical. I mean, we did that we, growing up. Yeah. Yeah, we so we would always do this at um, on Monday, Thursday. And the thing is, just to connect it back to our discussion about children, this was the children's absolute most favorite mm. night of the year. And yeah. they would go crazy with this stuff, washing <laughs> every single person's feet, yeah. bringing in extra hot water. They just really got the physical nature of the spiritual practice in a way that really was instructive for every adult in the room and was just, it added a spirit of play and a spirit of joy into the practice. And I think that that is, you know, I think that is something that Christianity as a whole can offer to, you know, regardless of 
perhaps some of these things that we talk about in terms of belief and so on. It's embodiments available. So when I mentioned that these other traditions are embodied, I wasn't clear about this. I specifically, I think you picked up on it, but just to be clear, worship practices, right? Like moving our bodies, raising our hands, clapping and singing. And I just had a thought right now that I want to throw by you. So this is extemporaneous here, but to combine these two conversations that we've been having, maybe a more low church, evangelical, Pentecostal, whatever environment does, like we talked about giving the disease and giving the cure. You inspire all this anxiety about whether or not you're in. Then you remind people that they're in with the gospel message or what, what have you. So they go, oh yeah, I've checked those boxes. I'm good with God. But then you've still in, in your body, you have adrenaline or anxiety or whatever left over from that little roller coaster ride whenever you happen to go on it. And then here, we're going to give you a way to physically work that out through worship. It's sort of like if I'm feeling panicky, sometimes I will go to the gym because I physically get out. I, I pump more blood through my body and it dissipates the various chemicals that my brain secreted or I, however it works. And like it's giving another one of the sort of antidotes to the poison, right? In this physicality. And what's interesting is that all three of those things, or maybe those, those two different movements, the sort of more thought oriented one and the more body oriented one, they both bind you to the group and they both increase your commitment to that community and therefore, they make it more likely that your children will be raised in that environment because you are more committed. You will go more times per week. And then the more adults there are, you you lose the collective action problem, as Tony Jones calls it, of mainline churches, or Ryan Burge, I think, called it that, uh, where you've got enough people with kids that you can get a kids program going because people are more invested here. And then you contrast that with a upper class, suburban, white, mainline Protestant tradition where you're not making people feel anxious about whether or not they're in because you think that that's morally wrong to do and theologically false. I agree. And then you're not needing to give them this like physical visceral experience to work out all that anxiety, but you're also not binding them to the group with either of those two things. And they're less likely to involve their children. They're less likely to come more than once a week or even once a week. And then you just play that out over time and mathematically one's going to grow and one's going to decline. Except that that doesn't work because what we're seeing is the decline of evangelicalism and the mass exodus of young people. So why didn't the binding work? My idea there is that it didn't work for particular reasons about the culture, like the turn to Trump, for instance, and the the lack of of character formation that could address the questions that younger people have in America and so they found it wanting. I just, I feel like the other thing that we are, that we have to address when we're talking about mainline Protestantism is that in some ways it became the culture. Right. So in order for you to imbue your children with the messages that you want them to hear about, that make them live well in this society, you don't necessarily need to take them to church to do that. So there right. were some certain, you know, real powerful successes, ways that mainline Protestantism became the culture. And because they weren't anti-culture, 
because they weren't against the culture. They didn't give their kids the messages, you have to be here or else, because there right. there was no there was no setup. And American culture, you know, one of the things that we do so well is convince every, we always want to be the outsider. And then we point to the culture and claim that it's the bad that's the bad guy over there, the culture. This yeah, is one right. of our like, it's one like of our Fox News, the largest media company, is not the mainstream media, even though they are the biggest and richest of them. Yeah. Right. And there's a great book about this called Religious Outsiders and the Making of Americans, kind of an old book, but it's a really mm. good one about this this dynamic that we, as Americans, we like so much. We're always liking to be the outsider. So I think this bodes really well for mainline Protestantism, right? Because we can give up this idea of ourselves as the culture and it's no longer the, no longer the country club. So now we can just position ourselves as cultural outsiders. And, and then if we're in the American dynamic, we attract people by being outsiders because we're now doing this really weird thing like that nobody does and nobody knows huh. anything about. Hey, look, there's this uh, this really weird thing called foot washing or this really weird thing called communion. <laughs> you know, it's like it's no longer it's no longer well known. So maybe it has more power. Yeah. What you said about that conference was intriguing to me. Like, I wonder if there is a younger generation Hopefully this is not wishful thinking, but I wonder if there's a younger generation who are experimenting with new modes and models and and different forms of the arts. If that's true, my hope is that the purse string holders of these, you know, like the Episcopal Church with their massive real, you know, just trillions in real estate holdings or I don't know, tens of billions, um, that they like, okay, let's try this stuff. You know, let's let's try the like fund some of those ideas. Experimental. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because otherwise it's essentially just like a 401k that, you know, will eventually, who does it even go to? Right. It's like, how do you even pass it on? Yeah. Where does it even go to? You got to spend it in some way. And so hopefully uh, there's some, some life there. And, you know, for instance, it's not all doom and gloom. I was recently in a Methodist church here in the Seattle suburbs for another reason. And they had like some evening musical event and it was like pretty full bunch of families, a lot of kids. Like apparently this place has a pretty robust like children's program and you know, they got a rainbow flag out too. Like they, it's not an exclusionary place. And so I I'm just wondering, there is a collective action problem. Like there are churches closer to our house where we've thought about going and then it's like, we know for a fact we'll be the only young family there. We're going to have all eyes on us. There's not going to be anything for Soren to do. And it's just like, I don't know, like I'm exhausted from the week. Like, I don't want to do that right now. (laughs) This is going to sound like a complete left field, but it's not. If there's anything I know coming out of the DIY punk and emo scene that I came out of, like, People can come up with cool shit ideas and those things can explode. So, you you know, it just takes imagination and, and people trying some stuff out. So, yeah, I think there is there is some hope there. I did hear about in in the Seattle area, and I don't know if this is exaggeration or if it's real or whatever, but I did hear that the even song at the Episcopal Church, which is a Sunday night thing, is attracting large numbers of young people. And I don't know if it's the artistic aspects of it. I don't know if it's the time of day aspects of it. I don't know. If, I don't even know if that's true. And I don't know if you should put that on your on your podcast. No, no. Yeah. But... You're talking about Compline. Yeah. So it's yes at St. Mark's Episcopal in Capitol Hill. It, it's like a multi-decades 
tradition and they pack it out. I mean, there are, so people listen on the radio, by the way, every week, it plays on one of the local public radio stations and there are hundreds of people in there and often they're very young. Sometimes they're probably on drugs. Uh, I have a friend who sings in that choir actually, and it's gorgeous. And it's just like, they just sing this short kind of service, like maybe 40 minutes long in this beautiful, you know, stone cathedral. And yeah, that's the kind of thing that is, I would say, definitely thriving in the Seattle area. And it kind of reminds me of like 12 step stuff where it is not in your face. It's just like, we're here, we're doing this. Here's what we're up to. Join if you want. And that church is fairly big. Yeah, maybe it's a question, just to put it into context, I think the question is sort of, how do we not get attached to our forms? Yeah. How, how do we continue to be willing to experiment? How do we know what really matters here? And, and how do we focus on what really matters? I mean, I know for me, food matters. Connecting mm. people with food, connecting a community through food, that is the core for me. And that has theological resonance for me. It has, you know, community resonance. It has individual resonance. It, you know, it's, it's healing, it's connecting. It's so I know that that's crucial and I don't think it's the only answer, but it's, you know, for me, it's a really important one. So I think that it has to do with not getting so attached to our forms that we think the forms are what we're doing here. And right. Christianity over 2000 years has evolved in its forms and can continue to evolve. And let's not get stuck on you know, mid 20th century forms. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I'm going to have a link to your personal website, which has a link to all your books. Anything else you want us to put in the show notes? I have a podcast called in search of. Oh, great. Um, season one is up. It's at uh, www.christiancentury.org uh, in search of slash in search of. You can find it there. So that's uh, interviews and just exploring exploring how do i put it people and ideas that expand a life of faith incredible i will be checking that out amy can't believe i missed that the second season of that will be in the spring of 2023 awesome hell yeah all right well thanks so much for coming by all right thanks dan that was super fun <laughs> 